All right, so we're going to get started. We have a lot to cover. I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. First of all, I would like to welcome everybody to the Antares Roundtable, specifically on Yacht Insurance Hell. So as the name implies, we've all been through a lot of challenges I know in the past, uh, probably even in the last couple of years in particular, trying to get reasonable insurance for our boats. The purpose of this call is to go into detail. Um, a lot of different questions people have had, and we've got a very special guest that's joining us that knows a lot more about this stuff than uh, most of us do. And it's um, we'll go into detail in a minute on who he is. But let's go ahead and get started. Actually, Keith, we'll start with you. So Keith, we're gonna do a quick introduction roundtable of the panel members. Keith, quick background on oh, yourself. Yeah. yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah. So uh, just a quick background. I started um, in the industry as the claims adjuster for Boat US and then uh, worked uh, some um, on the CAT team for uh, starting with Hurricane Sandy uh, and Hurricane Irma, and then went to the underwriting side. And then I, I left um, Seaworthy Insurance, which was the Berkshire Hathaway backed um, program that actually offered international insurance. Um, I left that program um, to join Novomar. Um, and uh, Novomar's got five offices in the United States and an office in Mexico. Um, I had a, a, a good relationship with Craig Chamberlain, the owner, um, <clears throat> when I was on the corporate side, because I got to develop relationships with most of the marine insurance, independent marine insurance agencies, and uh, reached out to Craig and opened up an office on the East Coast. And so I'm, I'm out of uh, Yorktown, Virginia now. Great. Well, thank you, Keith. We're very, very happy to have you uh, being the key part of this panel this evening. Alan and Elizabeth, can you guys do a quick introduction? Where are you guys located and a quick quick background? We are on our new Starlink in Mexico, in Mazatlan. And finally, finally, what, almost two years later, finally got transported from the East Coast. What a nightmare that is. But anyhow, it's all done and we're happy to be here and putting the boat back together and hopefully start cruising pretty quick. And I have a, I have just gone through insurance hell trying to get insured on the west coast of Mexico. And so I've got uh, some stories to tell. <laughs> well, thanks, Alan. Looking forward to it. Glenn. Sorry, uh, Mark, I was muted. Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Glenn McGonigal, uh, Hall 56, Mira. Um, We've been cruising uh, Western Central America, Caribbean, uh, boats currently in Panama, and uh, I'm sitting back uh, in the States uh, for a few weeks preparing for my son's wedding. And uh, by the way, since we're talking Starlink, Starlink is monitoring my uh, boat through uh, the Victron system there. So. Impressive. Impressive. Mark, are you online yet? Mark's Laurie. Yes, yes, okay. I am online. Is my video showing? Um, not sure yet. I don't see where you are, but go ahead and do the intro, and I'll try to I'll try okay. to ping you. Anyhow, uh, I'm Mark. I'm with uh, with uh, Serenity. It's a 2010 Antares, and I'm in the process of going through that insurance cell right now. Uh, among others with the, uh, with the great advice and help of Keith here. So uh, I wanted him to participate in today's um, 
pre presentation because he really uh, is, uh, is somebody who creates a balanced view and is able to uh, give folks who work with him uh, both the pros and the cons. And some of the things that, uh, that I found him uh, sharing with me were, were so honest in their, um, in their own view that I thought, you know, we really, we really need uh, something like this. Uh, I think that insurance is one of these subjects regardless of how many times you've gone through it. Uh, and I've only done it three times now for, uh, for voting. Uh, there's just, it's just a minefield and, and things change and the terrain moves and it's always, as you say, hell. So I'm looking forward to participating and sharing and learning as much as everyone else. Thanks, Mark, I appreciate it. My name is Mark Silverstein. I'm on my boat field trip uh, in Penang, Malaysia. So halfway around the world, it is in the morning here about 9.05 in the morning. AM and uh, let us get started with some ground rules first because we have a lot of people participating. Number one and number two, we have a lot of things to talk about. So first of all, if you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand using Zoom or to type out your questions in the chat. So uh, Glenn's going to help me monitor the questions as they come up. Feel free to ask questions as we cover each of these different topics. At the very end, we will also have a Q&A session, so that's another time to be able to, to ask questions. Because of the nature of this call and the details that we want to cover, this could take longer than the normal one hour that we try to keep these things time boxed into. So just as a heads up, it could run longer, but we will only do that if we feel like that it's, that it's meaningful and we're getting a lot of good dialogue and good information from everybody talking. So here's just a quick bullet point on the main things we're gonna talk about. So Keith is gonna give us an overview on just the state of insurance. We're gonna talk about insurance as a new sailor, some tips and tricks on how to handle that. Um, international cruising is a different animal than those of you that are based in the US or even the Caribbean. Liability only insurance as a topic, uh, 10 year old rigging. So some of us that have older boats like myself, even though it was a new boat when I bought it, my rigging's 10 plus years old. How does that, how does that affect my insurance? Hurricane insurance, lightning deductibles, lithium batteries. Thank you, Glenn, for bringing that up. But this is a new topic now. You'll be asked usually on questionnaires, do you have lithium batteries on your boat? And just in general, tips to keep the premiums lower, if at all possible. So, um, Keith, is there anything else that you would like to add on your overview to the group before we get into the meet? I, By no. the way, yeah, go ahead, Keith, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I was, was going to say also, um, we will have, for those of you watching this on YouTube, we will have in the, in the description below uh, Keith's contact information. And for those of you listening on the podcast, uh, we will also have the information in the podcast description on how to contact Keith directly for any additional questions. Go ahead, Keith. Yeah, nothing to add um, to, the, to, the, to the points. I've, I've got a couple of, uh, a couple of um, additions to the information provided, and I'll go through those as the uh, agenda flows through. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. All right. So let's just kind of start from the very beginning. And that's just the strategies for shopping for a policy. Um, Keith, can you just provide any advice on those people that are that their insurance, insurance is now going to be coming up? I mean, do they contact one agent? Do they go, use multiple agents? What's your recommendation on how to best shop for insurance? Sure. Um, so as far as the agents go, it, it is good to, to find an agent that you're comfortable with because most of the programs, especially in the international segment, uh, 
um, only allow one agent to represent you at a time. So in many cases, you're doing yourself a disservice if you try to shop the market because uh, um, anybody that you go to is not going to be able to access the, the available insurance programs uh, after the first agent that you contacted. And especially if the first agent that you contacted isn't the one that you want to um, go forward with, you're creating more paperwork for yourself. Um, so that you know that that's what I'd have to say on that. The um, <clears throat> the the overall question re really should um, so so yeah. The first answer is to find a broker that you're comfortable with. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask other brokers questions if you feel like you, there's information that's missing. Um, but but you generally it's in your best interest to stick to one broker both from the U.S. Marine Insurance Programs and the International Marine Insurance Programs. And I'm gonna be talking about those two segments because they do operate differently as we go through um, all, all of the slides. Okay, very good, thanks. So I know that a couple of the people on the panel mentioned that they just recently went through insurance upgrades. Alan, you mentioned that in the introduction. Do you mind just sharing briefly just your recent experience, you said that you're in the middle of hell right now. Can you? Well, the, the thing was that, you know, in looking to come to Mexico, we knew we were, we were going to have to find somebody new. We had had just an absolute Cadillac policy for six years. We were paying $4,478 a year for 700000 valuation on the boat on the East Coast through AIG Private Client Group. I'm not sure you could get that now because things have changed, but they never raised our rate over six and a half years, automatically renewed us. We paid quarterly. I say that because it's compared to all the other things we're seeing now where the, the policy, the premium is 90% earned when you sign and pay. In other words, they're going to keep all your money from the get-go. Anyhow, we went through a whole bunch of, of people and three different people that were looking at um, at global and got different prices from different ones and ended up with with global through something I saw read on the forum somebody suggested the marina shop in New Zealand yeah and they quoted pretty much the same global policy everybody was quoting but for 6440 so that's who we went with I would have liked to have gone with Novomar out of Puerto Vallarta because it was a better policy, fewer restrictions, nothing about hurricanes or anything because it's a Mexican insurance company and they actually appreciate what the risks really are here on the West Coast. And I don't think most underwriters really have a good view of what it is. Um, but what put it out of range was there's a 16% tax on everything that's sold in Mexico. And that pushed the quote up over $8,700. So anyhow, long story short, global through the marina shop in New Zealand was the best deal I could get. Okay. Well, that's my agent. That's who I use. I've used him for a long time. But Keith, any, any insight based on what you just heard Alan talk about? Any other advice you might give other people? Um. No, I mean, I agree with everything he said in terms, I mean, AIG, that's a great policy if you can still access it, but he's also right in that that's unfortunately 
gradually going by the wayside uh, as far as the marine program is concerned. Um, and then and then also the three different prices, it happens, it, it's a little unusual, but it, we, we, we do see it happen. But generally speaking, you, you should get the same rate um, for the same coverage um, with most of these programs, regardless of um, what agency you're using. Um, so that, that's actually something that I, I will ask um, Global uh, to see if, if there is different pricing structure depending on the channel. Yeah, I'd be curious about that too, because I, I had a similar experience um, a couple of years ago where I got two different numbers um, from, that's back when I was double checking everything because prices started to go up a couple of years ago. I was like, what in the heck? But anyway, I'd be curious to know on that. Um, all right, so we've, I think, covered at least some of the strategies on trying to to start shopping. Let's get into some of the meat of, of the conversation and let's talk about this topic of people that are new to sailing. Uh, we've all been there. At some point, we were new. Uh, myself, I had I had not a lot of experience. I had the ASA, ASA certs, and it still wasn't too complicated to get insurance. I, I'm sure it was more expensive, but things have gotten a lot stricter and a lot, I think, more constrained to new sailors. We've seen that on used boats um, and also on new boats. Keith, what's the state of the union from your perspective on new sailors and what strategies are out there for someone that's new to sailing? Sure. So if um, if you're new to sailing and you're looking at buying an Antares, um, that's going to be it's going to be a very difficult challenge, meaning you you have no ownership experience prior to buying the Antares. Um, Ideally, you, you want to make less than a 15-foot jump in size length overall. If you can do that, you're pretty much open to uh, all of the available options. Um, but if you're not in that situation, um, there are things that you can do. And, and the, the main things that you want to um, focus on primarily are hours logged as crew, uh, bare boat chartering, um, especially if you can get blue water experience, if you're looking at cruising, uh, log as many hours as you can. Um, obviously, keep a record of that log. Um, and another thing you can do at some point is work with a captain that has training experience and that can provide at the end of your training a captain's proficiency sign off letter. Because what you're going to run into is the programs that allow for that that jump in ownership will require a captain on board for a period of time, <clears throat> or at the very least require that proficiency sign-off letter. And if you go into the insurance submission process with that already completed, you're ahead of the game. Okay, got it. So keeping track of your hours, logging them as crew is critical. Any ballpark of what how many hours are, are they looking for? I mean, what's what's what would you recommend? Yeah, it, it it's it's a balance of uh, whether you have ownership experience or not, um, yeah. and and how many years. But generally speaking, um, you you want a minimum of uh, two hundred two hundred and fifty hours uh, logged before you start the underwriting process. Um, you can certainly start the underwriting process beforehand just to get some answers. Um, and um, but, but that's what I would recommend to prepare yourself to actually be able to obtain insurance. Okay, 
So 200, 250 hours logged. And that's that's obviously hours underway, not hours on the hook. Uh, <laughs> hours on the, well, I mean, hours on the hook can count, especially if you're doing maintenance, if you know, you're setting okay. anchors. Yeah, I mean, that, that applies. I mean, you, you certainly don't want to be, uh, you, you don't want a floating condo. Yeah, obviously, you know, that's not going to work. So, um, yeah. And I mean, and that estimate is a very, it's, it's a very general educated uh, guess. Okay. Okay, good. Fair enough. Well, um, the other question is, from a new owner perspective, I mean, I think generally, I'm just assuming this is the case, that your premiums are going to be higher if you're a newer sailor than those that are not. And if they are higher, how long will they be higher? How much more experience do you need before they actually start to ratchet down? Or is that kind of a not a not a good, accurate description of what happens with premiums? Yeah, especially in the U.S. programs, that's true, um, that there there is a, a, a premium in the rating. Uh, the companies that use algorithms in their rating uh, obviously will um, adjust the premium according to um, uh, ownership years of ownership experience. The um, I, I would say the first uh, sort of uh, the first line that you'll hit as a new owner is the three year mark. And the reason why that's important is because at three years of ownership, specifically for the U.S. programs. Um, you'll have access to all the viable options, specifically in terms of your ownership experience. And when that happens, when you have more options, the premium tends to go down because there's, you know, there's more supply essentially. So that's kind of the first threshold you'll hit as a, to get a break in insurance potentially as a new owner is that three-year mark. Okay. Mark, well, we uh, have a question. Uh, if you want to take a question at this point on the subject. Yep. Go ahead, Glenn. Yep. Uh, it's, it's from David uh, Gravelin. Uh, on our question on hours logged, if you bare boat charter a boat for a week, does that count as seven days times 24 hours logged? Um, it count, it counts as seven days. And then separately, it would, it could, it would count as hours logged. So um, one of the general questions that are asked is, you know, how much operating experience do you have? And if you're bare boating, let's say a half a dozen times a year, and you're also crewing on friends' boats, you know, you know, and, and you, you don't really have to do that every month, especially if it's seasonal uh, sailing, um, that will count as a full year um, when, you're, when you're looking at how many years operating experience. Um, so it's, 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 um, sort of two separate, uh, categories, hours logged, and then essentially how many years of, of operation you have. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, Mark Slarry, let me ask you a question. When you, I don't recall your resume at the point when you were buying your boat, but I mean, what was your experience with, with getting insurance from your perspective? I know you're doing that right now as well. Did you have any of the, yeah. any of these issues? Uh, I had uh, exactly those issues uh, because I had uh, I had boat ownership, but nothing within 15 feet of an Antares. And and uh, in terms of hours on similar vessels, um, I had some uh, chartering experience. Um, but you know, you're talking total hours in terms of the resume, um, less than uh, less than 100, right? Um, actively at the helm. Uh, so, so um, yes, I, I needed to, to work to make sure that, uh, that I was deemed uh, insurable. 
and there are ways that one can do this, which I'm sure Keith can uh, can help us uh, define. But uh, it was a challenge. I still haven't hit the three-year mark. I have to say, uh, at two years of experience, uh, the premium already went down. So a very good trend there. Uh, now that I'm moving from basically uh, US and Mexico waters to an international policy, uh, I'm looking at a premium increase of uh, not 100, not 200, but 300% <laughs> to get coverage. And I'm sure still being a relative newbie is a factor. Wow, 300%. That's substantial. I see a couple more questions have come in, one from Sylvia and Rick Schroeder, another from Tony. Uh, question number one is, if you sail on a friend's boat, but no licensed captain, will the hours count? What say you, Keith? Yeah, yes. I mean, because you can, you know, you you log your hours independently of uh, of a U.S. Coast Guard captain. Yeah, you know, I the only situation I can think of that where that you know might be an issue is if you're actually trying to get your six pack license. But okay. um, but but yeah, but but generally for insurance purposes, no, you're you're fine logging your own hours independently. Okay, and then a follow up question to that from Tony is does having a powerboat ownership and experience help with hours, i.e. a 25-foot fishing vessel? Uh, it, it, help, it helps in a general sense, but it's not ideal if you're looking at buying an Antares Sailcat uh, because the underwriters aren't really going to... They, they will look at that and, and, and it will... It will add to the overall picture, but it's not ideal for for gaining the experience that the underwriters are looking for. Okay, so a powerboat of some sort is not. It's a sailboat that they're that they would want to zero in on. It sounds like. And then uh, Charles, you said you had a couple of things to add. I know you went through a lot of challenges when you bought your Antares, getting insurance. Jump in. Oh yes, thank you, Mark. Um, I I think to put in maybe some simpler words of what Keith is saying. Keep a sailing resume, write one. Uh, in my case, uh, I was told by the underwriters that the sailing resume is ultimately what convinced them. Um, I'll tell you what we were up against was that first time boat owners, uh, the boat was in Florida and we didn't live in Florida. So that we were basically not insurable. The, um, it was the sailing resume. It was the offshore sail training that I did uh, on Mahina. You can do it with John Kretschmer. You can do it with 59 North. They did pay attention to that. Um, initially, they came back and said, well, you're going to need a captain for 30 days and we'll give you insurance. And then we asked them to reconsider, pointed out all the seminars that I had ever attended, boat show seminars, everything, just make a nice, pretty sailing resume that's real, offshore, uh, uh, bare boat, everything. And they came back and said, okay, uh, three days and uh, uh, with a captain and, and as long as you, and they even signed off Maria who didn't have any of the experience, my partner who didn't have the experience that I had. So that was our experience. Ah, okay. So good, Charles, thanks for sharing. I know, I know it was a challenging time uh, for you doing that. Keith, I've got one one last question uh, here on the new sailor stuff, and that comes down to specific training like ASA courses. When I purchased my boat, I did all the ASA courses thinking that that would help me. I don't know if it did or didn't, but I mean, I got insurance. It wasn't hard to get at that point, but that was, you know, 12, 12 plus years ago. Does that help today? 
Yeah, it, it does help uh, round out the resume. And Charles is absolutely right. The resume is the most important thing to be able to portray your experience. Um, I, I sort of look at the log as the, um, uh, the, the raw information that you can use to build the resume. And then you can always submit the log with the resume um, uh, just to make it stronger. But those ASA courses will, will help, especially if, you're, if an underwriter is looking at, at the risk and, and the resume and they're in a gray area, meaning, you know, it's up to the underwriter to decline or approve the risk because it it um, it's not a straightforward decline, and and the underwriter has the authority to have the discretion to make the decision, and so the ASA courses are good to just add to the experience. Okay, so you would you would recommend people that are thinner on the resume to 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 do an ASA type course and get that get that on there. Yeah, because uh, in the process, you're also adding experience um, through getting yeah. these courses, too. Yeah, sure. sure. Now, I would add the offshore sale training programs is what made the difference for us. So we did Mahina. That was 14 days in the South Pacific uh, with, a, you know, I even provided everything that we learned, the itinerary. And, and, and ultimately, that's what that's what did it for us. So I'd suggest get that training ahead of time. I've got a good idea too, just to, just attack in real quick, and that's um, I think it would be interesting for us to talk to Dave Cottle about signing off, making the Antares universities that we conduct the two days of, of training um, as a formal thing. Since he's a licensed captain, maybe there's some way to kind of incorporate some sort of a certification from that. That's offline, but that might help as well. I'm not sure, but it might. A couple more questions. Get, go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, go ahead and go. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Mark. I just said that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I went through. I went through the exact same thing as 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 you guys have described. Um, we took delivery like you did in Argentina, and you know we had to have you know a delivery captain for part of the uh, journey uh, for my insurance uh, because mm -hmm. I was a new I was a new boat owner as well, despite having had all the ASA certs and years of charter experience. Um, that was 2017. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said, I guess. The bottom line is, as, as new sailors, anybody out there listening, there's a fair amount of work to kind of build up that resume to keep that front and center. That's a, that's a key part on getting insurance uh, for your boat. We've got two more questions that came through. It looks like I'm going to go ahead and start with David. David asked a question. He said, what about insurance requirements for having a certain number of crew? I heard that carriers often require three plus adult crew. Keith, what say you? Yeah, that's that's specifically in terms of um, ocean crossings or blue water sailing. The general rule of thumb is the international programs will generally require a minimum of three crew, uh, prefer, preferably experienced with blue water so that one's at the helm, one's at rest, and one's at watch at all times for uh, extended navigation. Okay, so for blue water sailing, you're seeing that they do sometimes acquire three. I haven't seen that in my policy. It's been two people have been required, but I mean, it may, I'm sure it depends on what policy is written. And I know for sure that they don't like single-handing. Um, that's for sure, at least not in my policy. S some more questions came through on this same topic. Does the location of the boat, is that important? If so, what's the easiest location for insurance, especially if you're a new sailor? Yeah, uh, yes, it's very important. Um, the, the, 
the easiest for insurance, the easiest um, locations to acquire insurance uh, are in non-catastrophic non states. So uh, on the East Coast, North of North Carolina. So starting at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay where, where I'm at, um, or obviously uh, the Great Lakes or the West Coast of uh, California, um, Washington State. Um, there, there are more insurance options in those locations um, compared to the catastrophic states, North Carolina, down Florida, and then around the Gulf of Mexico. So at, generally speaking, that's those are the easiest areas. Okay, and so, so Keith, I'll add to that An another question. You've, you, you've mentioned a couple of times the you know, US slash maybe North America, then international. Is it easier to get insurance if your boat, let's say you have a BVI, flag vessel and your boats in the Caribbean is it and if and you're a new sailor or let's say a Canadian registered boat what's how does that factor into the insurance with new sailors the um we, we've seen the flag is less important than the primary mooring location and the navigation territory within 12 months that the, that's okay. the that's the primary driver over the flag of the vessel okay all right Okay, well, we're going to keep things moving. It's already been 30 minutes and we've covered the first, the first one of the first big topics. So as I mentioned, we have a lot to go through and we just want to make sure that we cover as much as we, as we possibly can within the hour. We probably will go longer just to forewarn everybody, but I think the content's good. I'm, I'm learning a lot myself. New topic is now international cruising. And so lots of us that either are thinking about buying an Antares or any boat, doesn't have to be an Antares, any catamaran, have international cruising plans in our mind. And I guess to start things off, Keith, are there regions that are just simply harder to insure worldwide? Yeah, the, the hardest region um, is um, the Indian Ocean, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, that, that tends to be the most challenging. Um, and then if you go, I guess the second hardest um, would be um, the South Pacific, um, South America, and then from there, um, the Caribbean uh, and the Mediterranean. Okay, so I'm in Southeast Asia, so I'm, I know it's, it's, it's always a challenge, but so far so good. Um, is it easier to, and you said, it, you said that the flag didn't matter so much, so whether it be a U.S. flag, Canadian flag, or, you know, European flag boat, you're saying that it doesn't make that much difference on acquiring insurance is more where the boat's going to be cruising and moored that there are there are some international pro programs lloyd's of london type programs based out of europe that um that have that requirement um where the vessel you know the the flagging of the vessel is a requirement um on whether they can provide insurance but uh, overall um the main the, the the main driver is the primary mooring location and the twelve month navigation. So I'm not saying you won't run into that. I'm just saying that you'll run into the the former more. Okay, fair enough. Because I, I know that I've I don't want to change my boat, but I thought about maybe if it was easier if I was a BVI uh, vessel to go with the BVI flag for international cruising. Um, if, it, if it made any difference, maybe I would, it would open up some Lloyd's policies that I, I now cannot seem to get. I used to be able to get, but now I cannot. Um, so who knows? But so I guess that, that 
really summarizes the last question we have on this on this topic, and then we can open up for any more questions. And that's you're saying that the flag strategies for global cruising are not as important as where you're sailing and where you're moored. So don't get so wrapped around an axle on U.S. flag versus, let's say, a European flag or BBI. For, for there, 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 there are certainly, yeah, in general, there are certainly cases where that would be pri primary uh, on on an yeah. individual basis, but in general, um, yes. Okay, fair enough. Yep. All right. Um, anything to add, Glenn, from your experience on your international sailing? You're in Panama for insurance. Mark, we uh, we found, as as Keith is alluding, um, that the geographies in which we were sailing um, didn't always map with uh, the markets that certain carriers wanted to insure. Um, so when we went to the med, you know, we had to make some changes. Um, we came back to the U.S. and um, as most of you know, Pantaneous left the U.S. market, but they're still insuring over in the med. But I think they wanted a, you know, a European or EU flag vessel uh, to take insurance over there. So I, I would just say my experience has been um, it's I'd like to, I was going through my history of insurance. We're in our sixth year of cruising. And what I realized was that every year we were in, we were cruising in different part of the world um, for the most part. And it was so it's hard to compare the 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 amount I paid every year because, you know, it was basically a completely different policy every year. Yeah. You guys have probably moved around the most as far as being in very, very different areas. So I figured you might have some good insight on that. Thanks for sharing. Another question somebody asked is, do you buy insurance for a cruising area? And I think the answer is yes. Keith? Yes. Um, all, all of the programs out there will have a cruising area um, that, that you're limited to and, and that the premium is based on. And so going back to Glenn's question, you have a lot of variation between premium and coverage as you cross oceans and you cross bodies of water. Yeah. All right, um, we're gonna keep moving on and change topics. And the next topic is um, liability only. Is that a possibility for some people? And I know, Keith, that you worked with Mark on some of the questions that we as owners had about some sort of a, maybe an, a group insurance that was um, for us as owners self-insured effectively, but that was kind of a non-starter sounded like. But what are your thoughts on liability only? What What are the trends? Yeah, it's becoming more of a trend, um, not, not just internationally, but also specifically in the state of Florida. Um, <clears throat> and um, it's, it's, a, it's a viable option for owners that are in the financial position to self-insure if something happened to the boat and they had to, they had, they had to pay out of pocket to completely replace the vessel, um, uh, but just want to protect themselves from liability from, from others. Um, and as a result, you'll, you'll certainly see a reduction in premium cost. Um, but just also, um, it's important to make sure what kind of liability policy you have, because in the U S, um, within the U S there are some liability programs that provide wreck removal. Um, and if you can get a liability only policy with wreck removal, uh, much better than just, uh, liability without wreck removal. You know, because those costs can go 
extremely high, especially if you run into a protected reef, if you've got an oil spill. Um, so, you know, just um, what I would say specifically within the United States is if you're looking at liability only, um, you know, you, you want to see if you can get wreck removal with, with that. Okay. A question that somebody had, David had specifically on liability insurance. He said, is it difficult to find liability only insurance? It's uh, more difficult than full coverage, just because not every company that provides full coverage also provides liability only as an option. Um, okay. And it depends on where you are. It can be, it's more difficult in Florida. Um, uh, but that, again, that's changing. We're, we're seeing, we're seeing a, a trend where that's opening up um, and, and more companies are, are offering that because they see the need. Okay. Alan, I, I see that you have a question. Go ahead and jump in. Let me unmute there. Um, I don't know how it applies to boats, but we ran into this problem years ago when we had a rental property and we could not get an umbrella type liability policy because we did not have an actual domicile address. We use a PO box in Nevada. And that was a requirement. It's, as a full-time liveaboard, I'm, I'm just wondering if it's a problem to get liability only if you, you don't have a house anywhere. Um, from, the, uh, from a marine insurance perspective, uh, I, I don't think that that will be uh, a barrier to getting liability only. Um, because usually what happens is the insurance companies that don't like PO boxes won't won't offer the quote in the first place, whether it's full coverage or liability. So you'll you'll find that out at the beginning of the submission process, or you know we can tell you, hey, this this particular program requires the physical address even even to get a submission. Um, okay, um, Sylvia and Rick, I see that you have a question. I thought maybe you could ask it if you don't mind and just uh, give a little more detail on your question about insuring a boat through an LLC, if you feel comfortable asking. If not, you may be on mute. Yeah, hi, it's Rick here. Um, it's just a question with regards to- Can, can you hear? Yes, we, yeah, hi guys. Purchasing a, purchasing a new yacht through a limited partnership or um, a limited liability corporation, an LLC, um, uh, we've got a little bit of information on this and it, it sounds like you have to be a U.S. resident or have, um, or go through a friend that's a U.S. citizen to get this. And, uh, I guess the question would be whether or not there's something similar if you're a Canadian, um, if, if this type of policies available are registering the vet, the vessel in a um, an LLC and, and that's to protect um, your personal assets if there is uh, some liability sure yeah um, yeah so the, the the rule of thumb on an on LLC ownership is that the LLC is created specifically for the ownership of the vessel and that there are no other there are no other act, uh, ongoing activities or employees under the LLC 
If you have other assets um, that you want to put under the LLC, the underwriters are typically okay with that. Um, but in terms of um, uh, it, it being a, a United uh, an LLC within the United States, I, I believe that's correct. I believe most of the underwriters are going to require that, um, and that and that also that the uh, corresponding mailing address is a uh, is a U.S. address. And and we're, we're talking specifically about. Um, uh, a primary mooring location within the United States as well as navigation territory within the United States. So being a Canadian um, resident or citizen that we don't have a, a U.S. address and then that wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do that. Not, not for the U.S. programs, correct. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Are there programs, Keith, that are available for Canadians for something similar that you're aware of? Uh, uh, for, for U.S. navigation and mooring locations, um, I, I don't know of any because the problem we run into is that the, uh, the international programs that allow for a foreign address uh, do, uh, are, are, not, um, are not licensed or, or, or have, you know, operate within the United States. So it's kind of a double-edged sword at that, at that point. Okay. Um, I, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Sylvie and Rick. Uh, Keith, we have another question, and that's uh, asked by Charles. Can you use a mail forwarding service? And Charles, I'm assuming you mean that's as your primary address. Like, let's say, St. Brennan's Isle, Green Cove Springs. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Or, or, or Delaware. Yeah. The answer uh, is, it, I mean... I've never had a problem. LSE is in Delaware, and I thought you were, maybe you were doing that. See, I'm wondering if the insurance, I know they don't like post office boxes, but if you have a, I mean, that's technically a physical address. Yeah, the old uh, 411 Walnut Street. Um, yeah, it, that's uh, <clears throat> that's fine um, if you, for full-time cruisers and liveaboards. Uh, I don't see a barrier to that, where we run into a problem with um, a forwarding mailing address is if if um, you're not cruising all year round and you have a physical address in the United States um, that you go to, um, the underwriters look at that as a red flag, specifically the ones that don't allow for full-time cruising or liveaboards. So outside of that situation, I, I don't I don't see that as an issue. Okay. Thanks, Keith. Hey, Mark Solari, I'm going to have you tee up this one specifically around group insurance. I know you've talked to Keith about this. Can you tee up the question and Keith will let you respond? Yeah, <clears throat> there was a reasonable and hypothesis that we band together as Antares owners, given the, um, the value of the vessels, the, um, the ownership profile, you know, perhaps being more mature, more experienced or not, you know, but, but nevertheless, from an underwriting risk perspective, I would have thought that Antares uh, would present a rather attractive proposition for insurers and therefore could we form a syndicate and work with an agent like Keith in order to get discounts on a collective basis rather than an individual basis. So Keith, could you um, could you test that, or could you respond to that hypothesis? 
Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't do a great job when this first came up. I think I fueled the fire a little bit because I was optimistic and I, I was I was explaining how it could work. But in this environment, it's 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 almost impossible because the problem is the loss ratios, generally speaking, with sale catamarans are continuing to increase. And Antares is getting pulled into the the general sailing catamaran pool. Um, and so it um, in short, it's just a matter of, of uh, numbers and just the 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 number of Ontario's boats out there is it, just not big enough to create a, a a program like that in a market where um, it, more and more insurance companies are limiting or um, or or their uh, or, or their stop they stop writing sail catamarans. Um, now, with that said, I, I'm always looking for opportunities to open the door, especially with smaller programs. You know, explain the Antares product, the the owners community. I think it's definitely unique and exclusive, and you know, the construction of the vessel certainly warrants uh, uh, underwriting attention. And I and I do always push that with the program managers, and and I think that's where the opportunity is uh, to see if we can you know, push the door open in, in those programs that are still riding sailing catamarans. So wh whether it's to see if we can get premium relief a little bit or uh, whether they can open their appetite a little bit more. Okay, thanks. I know that's been a hot topic in the owners forum. Um, Sylvia and Rick have another follow-up question for you, Keith, and they wanted you to clarify the cruising part-time versus full-time and how it affects insurance. Sure. Um, so essentially what cruising full-time uh, from an underwriting perspective is, is putting the, uh, the individual in a liveaboard situation. And some underwriters don't write liveaboards and they don't distinguish between full-time cruising and just liveaboards that never leave the slip. Um, and, and so that's the, the primary driver there where uh, Part-time cruisers, generally speaking, can have more potentially have more options because those programs that offer coverage but not offer coverage to liveaboards will will provide a quote. Okay, did that did that help Sylvia and Rick? If so, just let us know to chime in or send send a message. We have another question from Tony. He says, "Is underwriting changed based on the manufacturer of the sailing catamaran?" I think what you were saying is it doesn't really change. It's still lumped as a catamaran. Is that is that true? Yes. Um, there there are specific situations where um, certain programs will not write certain manufacturers. Um, you know, obviously, Antares is not one of those manufacturers. So, um, uh, sort of on the uh, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, we see that happening, um, but that's, I mean, that that's few and far between. Okay, fair enough. So there is some distinction, but not, not a lot. All right, we'll keep on moving. We'll go to our next topic. And this is a, a big one because uh, for those of us that have older boats, we get this question and I've had the same conversation with the Marina shop on this topic. And that's 10 year old rigging, and you know, do you need do you need to replace it if if it's ten years old? Any advice on insuring with an older rig? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that that's where the 
the programs with the most strict requirements on rigging will we, we see start at the 10 year mark. And then we see we see others at the 15 year mark. So a good rule of thumb, especially if your 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 um, extended navigation is is to um, uh, at least get a loft inspection at year 10. Um, but ideally, especially if you're in um, warmer environments, which most of us are, um, that, that uh, if you can replace the rigging at, at year 10, I mean, especially if you, if you know you're going to be um, in, in, in foreign countries for two or three years. I mean, you don't, you don't want to leave the states with your rigging at nine years old. And then two years later, you, you find an opportunity with another program that's with better coverage and less premium, or even worse, you're being non-renewed because uh, of the program closure, and and um, you know you're you're in Tahiti or Malaysia or somewhere where it's you know could be a lot harder to get rigging replaced. Yeah, fair enough. Does anybody else have any experience with ten-year-old uh, rigging with your insurance policies? Whether it be Alan, uh, Glenn, you're not there yet on your boat, uh, but I think that you probably are. Mark on your boat are getting close. Mark Solari. Are you asking me, Mark? Yeah, if, if you guys had any experience with with 10-year-old rigging issues, or are you, are you, well, are yeah. you good? We were getting that when we started looking for policies, right? We were not getting it from AIG, even though the boat's 14 years old. They kept renewing year after year, no questions asked. But when we started looking for new insurance, we were starting to get the question about rigging and we actually had a rig inspection because just for our own knowledge and the guy who looked at it said, you know, I'm not seeing anything on your boat that's, I wouldn't expect on a 14 year old boat. That being said, it'd Here's be a good time. Seen. He could point out things that were looking bad. There were some swages that showed some telltale signs of rusting from the inside out. and so we went ahead and got the whole thing replaced before we ever left the East Coast. That being said, almost all the insurers had something to say about if you don't get it replaced, either we won't insure you at all, or we won't cover anything that has to do with the mass. And knowing the way insurance companies look at claims, if the stove blew up, they'd say it was a fault of the mass. So anyhow. We finally bit the bullet, spent 26 grand and got new standing and running rigging. Wow. So that, that's a big yeah. ticket. I mean, the rigging, to do the full rigging here in, in uh, Thailand or Malaysia is, is less than half that. Holy smokes. Now, anyway. we did also replace the running rigging, you know, the halyards and, and okay. a lot, not the sheep, but a lot of the running rigging and the, the cell, no, what was the furler we had the furlex furler on the general oh we did get a new furler, furler. five thousand of it was a yeah. new hark and furler yeah that's um, expensive so and and we were using you know our guy was not the cheapest guy in town we were in a time pressure at the time and this was a guy that we knew and we trusted and, and we basically yeah. said do what you need to do we gotta go and yeah. so we weren't even there when it was being done so you know the price is definitely higher than we would have had to spend but yeah. we got it done and uh, and it feels good to have it done. And, sure. you know, it's interesting looking at when we were, when our old rigging was curled up on the floor of the shop, 
the shrouds, which, you know, you look at the shrouds, oh, we've got these nice pretty stainless shrouds. As curls of shroud on the floor, they were not stainless steel colored, they were orange. They, wow. There was that much rust. It was not obvious until it was like all clumped up there together. And he was showing us how you could run your hand along like the diamond stays and feel like an irregularity in it. And he said, those are wires that inside the stay are broken because that's where, you know, you've got two different wraps of direction on all these stays and they're, and they're constantly working against each other. Even though the boat is sitting still, it's still constantly working. And he said, and it's the inside strands that tend to break, not the outside ones. And you can't see them, but you can feel them. So he was explaining all this to us and, and said, but all of this is normal. Just here's what you want to watch for. And yeah. we just said, no, it's not worth it. We're going to Mexico. We're just going to do it. Yeah. Um, Glenn, go ahead and jump in. I see you have a, you have a comment. Yeah, this is actually just, uh, I, I'm curious personally, I've, I've, you know, we're in our sixth year with the boat and I've never had an insurer ask for a rig inspection as part of insurance underwriting. Uh, when does that start, Keith, and, and how frequent should I expect it? Yeah, it's, it starts at year 10, depending on the program. Some programs uh, start at 15. Um, it's more for if you're applying for new insurance. Um, um, and then obviously some of them will keep a schedule. So if you know, you're insured with them for five years or 10 years, they, they may require that. Um, but yeah, the, the earmarks are 10 years or, or 15 years are the, the two timeframes we see. Um, sort of, <clears throat> there, there's another point here that's as important as rigging it that might be more important. And that is to have a survey, a hauled survey by a SAMS or NAM certified surveyor um, that's um, less than two years old, ready to go. If you're leaving the United States um, and, and, and you're cruising internationally because you're preparing yourself to meet the underwriting requirements. Again, if you have program closure or if there's another program out there that's uh, more competitive. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, getting a hauled survey overseas. Um, so that that's another important point, and we we see that a lot uh, in, in the industry now, um, where you know, especially if you've got a renewal coming up, and a renewal requirement is to have a hauled survey because the boat just passed a threshold, uh, like a five-year threshold, um, for example. Uh, you may only have. 45 days or you know 60 days to get a survey you don't you don't want to be in that position so um, that's you know that's another thing to keep in mind with the rigging that's good to know so just just to kind of summarize that again Keith if you plan on leaving and in this case if you're I guess in the U.S. or U.S. waters and leaving then you switch into the international bracket for insurance and that's when you need to reshop and by because because of reshopping you may need to be required to do a haul a uh, full survey. And you said that, is that survey good for if, if, it, if you, that may happen a year or two in advance, I mean, a year or two in the future, it's, it's still okay? Yeah, generally the strictest requirement is okay uh, with a survey that is two years old. Uh, some of them are three years old, um, but yeah, generally you want your survey to be no more than two years old. Okay, um, okay. I have something to add to that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
Yeah. Um, first of all, I think it's it's a good idea um, for anyone when they're hauling out to to get that said survey uh, because that survey is supposed to be an out of water, not in water survey, and I'm facing that right now. For example, that's a a requirement along with the rigging survey for uh, for getting approved by Jackline, which is a pretty good program for uh, international sailors. Um, some some underwriters, however do accept for at least a hull condition survey, a testimony by the contractor who's doing the work on the boat. So I had my haul out in the Pequimar here in Puerto Vallarta and, uh, and I'm having uh, the contractor because we, we actually stripped the, um, the bottom paint down to the gel coat layer, checked all the through hulls, rebedded anything that could be a potential source of water ingress, the SSB plate, the, uh, the bridle plates, even the cutlass, uh, uh, cutlass bearings were removed and rebedded, right? So I'm getting a statement from the contractor to say that uh, the condition of the hull is excellent, no delamination found. <laughs> the visual inspection is of course a lot better than any surveyor can, can accomplish from knocking. Uh, and, and so that's, that's one trick, if you will, or one approach, I should say. Uh, that I'm hopeful will uh, will produce some dividends. All right, thanks, Mark, for that input. Another question for you, Keith, is any issues with ensuring synthetic standing rigging, Dyneema or whatever? Sure. Um, yeah, composite rigging can be tricky. It, the um, the underwriters will obviously look at. Um, the vessel as well and the hull. If there's composite material in the hull, especially if it's, I know this probably doesn't apply to Antares, but if it's a if it's a semi-performance or performance hull, then it definitely falls into that to a different class, a more restrictive class. Um, if the so, but to go back to the question, um, you sh we shouldn't see a problem with it if it's not a, a high performance uh, vessel. Um, so, you know, if you've got carbon fiber or uh, composite material, uh, I, I don't I don't see that as a, a as an issue. OK, OK, thank you very much. All right, we'll keep on moving and let's just talk about the next question. Hurricane zones. I said this specifically because of the Caribbean, but in my case, it's cyclones or you have typhoons depending on where you are but all the same type stuff um catastrophic to the boats and also to your wallet as far as insurance any advice that you have um what are the trends keith that you're seeing for hurricane zones in the caribbean and the u.s at this point yeah sure so start, starting off with the caribbean um it's best to be um uh, outside of the box uh, during hurricane season. So your primary mooring location should be outside of the box, either north or south. Generally speaking, that box south is 12 degrees, 40 minutes latitude. So Grenada is always comes up as sort of the first uh, uh, first mooring location that is available. And then obviously anything south, um, uh, or if you go north, depending on the program, you just want to be in the, the you know, the east coast of uh, of the U.S., uh, ideally above the Florida Georgia line. Um, if you if your primary mooring location is still in the Caribbean, um, then you'll you'll be in the international programs uh, during hur during uh, hurricane season. 
Um, there, there is, there's one more program that I can think of that, that offers uh, Caribbean navigation if the primary mooring location is within the United States during hurricane season. Um, but generally speaking, if you're in the Caribbean, you're, you're gonna be in the international segment of, uh, of the market. Um, as far as the, and I'm sorry, I'll wait for questions before I go to the next point. Yeah, so so I do have a question to kind of tack onto that. Let's just say that you that you um, are moving the boat. And I'm asking this for some friends of ours, uh, moving the boat from Grenada and want to get it up north. And you are there at the on the cusp of hurricane season. Your primary location is you're basically in transit, um, heading up to let's just say Maine um, or somewhere like that. What happens with insurance? I mean, I mean, obviously you're not mooring the boat down there you're you're jumping off and let's just say Grenada and you're picking the right weather window and then you're heading north is that a problem for insurance to be able to do a passage like that to kind of if you will hop skip and a jump through that that uh, zone so so is the is the hypothetical situation somebody that would be sailing from Grenada to the United States after June 1st yes yeah that's tough um it, i mean so more than more than likely, the options in the current market right now could would be potentially uh, what we call X wind coverage. So, um, you know, the the options would be, you know, you could you could have full coverage, but without any name storm or hurricane coverage um, for that for that type of situation. Okay, so so you just wouldn't be covered if you got whacked by a hurricane, uh, and that let's just say it's a week and a half transit now the, the question is if you jump from grenada to florida once you hit the east coast of the u.s do you is that then okay i'm just curious how does that work yeah because the 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 program uh that's available for that type of coverage will also provide coverage in in florida um so you you, you wouldn't have to change insurance policies once you hit the the u.s um at least, at least not for the first three months. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those, those particular situations are, uh, they're a little bit comprehensive, so it's hard to put generalities on it. Um, you know, there's, we could go down a rabbit hole with that situation. I'm happy to do it on an individual basis, but generally that's, that's what you're looking at. Okay. We'll probably go offline on that one in particular. The other question is if you, if you're looking at uh, the hurricane zones and you have Florida versus let's say North Carolina is there a difference that you would see in premiums and and ease of insurance if your bet was in Florida versus North Carolina insuring yes uh, generally speaking there's uh, a much higher premium on on Florida mooring locations compared to North Carolina and then and then also when you get north of North Carolina into the mouth of the Chesapeake you're crossing over into a non-catastrophic state mooring, um, and and you'll see a, another premium break when you do that. When you go when you cross into Virginia, into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, into okay. the Mid Atlantic area. Okay, so so the next question that we have in this area is uh, for named storms and deductibles for named storms. Do they vary a lot between policies? Or are they all pretty standard? The Generally, the standard is 10% these days. Um, we're seeing higher deductibles than 10% in 
specifically in Florida, as well as uh, in the international cruising. Um, um, in the United States, there are still programs that go less than 10%. Uh, and that, uh, and, and some of them will off, offer options. So, you, you know, you pay more for a lower storm deductible. Um, but uh, general, generally, will, as a rule of thumb in the catastrophic states, it's, it's 10% and sometimes we see 5%. Okay, okay. And does it vary? Well, I won't go there because that, I can deal with that offline. We'll keep things moving. But since we're talking about, you know, catastrophic things happening, Lightning deductibles. I've noticed that they seem to have gone up for some. I don't know if they have, but it seems to be at least on my policy. Uh, talk about lightning, if you don't mind, Keith. Yeah, at first for you know, in the claims data, what what we do know is that catamarans are susceptible to lightning strikes, um, which is why when I started underwriting in uh, 2012, um, we we didn't see lightning deductibles. So it was very rare. Uh, now it's becoming more more common um, because because of that, and and usually you'll see the lightning deductible match the name storm deductible, um, and I think that's where the industry is going unless we get some relief, and I I don't see how based off of you know just frequency of strikes and uh, weather patterns. So I think it's just something that we have to adopt as as a new norm. Okay, so kind of kind of what you're saying is it is what it is at this point based on the trends in the industry. Is there anything that you can do from a preventive measure on lightning that would actually reduce that deductible? Um, no, um, the, 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 the lightning deductibles that programs have are, are, are mandatory based off of their own guidelines so that they don't have, um, they don't have uh, exceptions that can be made if you've got pr uh, protection on the vessel, lightning protection on the vessel. Um, what it might help with is pre-underwriting, um, you know. And, and again, this is part of a whole picture. Uh, but if we're operating in a gray zone, um, and, and lightning protection is part of the the overall protection of the vessel, you know, that it might help there. Um, it, as far as the U.S. programs are concerned, there's still programs out there that don't uh, provide a separate deductible to lightning, meaning that if you had a, a lightning strike, it would be covered. Uh, under the hull deductible. Um, so it, th those are still available, but um, you, you know, you, you run into lightning deductibles more in the state of Florida and also uh, in, in the international programs. Okay. Can I add one more thing about lightning? Yes. Um, okay. It also, the size of claims have quadrupled compared to the kind of electronics that you had on a boat. Yep. 15 years ago, what they are now, I mean, these are $30,000, $40,000 claims in some cases, if you lose all your electronics. Yeah, that's true. And then also the, the, the cost of labor um, obviously has gone up. Uh, and that, that doesn't help things either. Um, yeah, the, the severity has definitely gone up. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, what whether there could be a a program for for Antares, and that's one of the challenges that you face because you have one bad lightning claim, and it could wipe out the whole risk pool. Um, so the severity is um, it, it, Charles is right. The severity is really what what hurts uh, catamarans with lightning strikes. Yeah, and so and um, Keith, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, I actually did talk to uh, uh, an acquaintance who is an underwriter for a uh, 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 an extreme program in Southern California for high risk clients and high fire areas. So different program, but it's a very unique program. It's boutique. And I explained to her what we were trying to do. And she said what Keith just said, basically, if we have if if we create a program for you, your your premiums don't come anywhere close to what it costs to replace that boat. So if there's only 50 of you, forget it. We wouldn't yeah. do it. If there if you need to be in a bigger pool than that, so you can spread the risk out over yeah, one, 500 gosh. or more catamarans. Yeah. So we have two more questions on in, on the same topic. Uh, one from Mark. Mark, go ahead. Mark Slarwi, and then Alan and Elizabeth, you're next. Yeah, I've heard in terms of lightning strikes as well, there's the interpretation of what is a lightning strike. Keith, if you can comment on that, do you need to be directly struck by a bolt in order to be considered lightning struck? Or what happens if you sustain damage because the boat next to you was struck and it burned, it fried your electronics in the process? Sure. I mean, if the policy covers lightning strikes in both of those scenarios, that's a covered loss. Um, what I've seen from my claims experience is a lot of the lightning strikes are secondary strikes. So um, the latter situation where you're next to somebody or the lightning travels through the um, marina uh, electrical infrastructure and, and into your shore power. Um, if there's not a clear entry and exit point with the lightning, um, you know, what, what's helpful in those situations, um, again, from my prior claims experience to, to, to um, um, you know, to, to determine that it was a lightning strike is um, weather conditions, weather reporting, um, other boats that, that got struck. Um, so it, it's just good to essentially jump on the facts of loss. If you have a secondary strike right away and get statements and, you know, so that you can, you, you can establish that it was a lightning strike if you don't have a, a clear entry and exit point. That's good. Alan. Well, I just wanted to tell you, looking at my new global policy, my deductible is 1%. However, it's doubled for mast and or lightning damage, and it goes up to 5% for named storm, just as point of comparison. That's pretty low. Yeah, it's not too bad. Although, no. now it is pretty low. I mean, if you figure it's, 1%, we, we dropped the value to 500,000. So 1% is 5,000. So if it's doubled, it's 10,000. And a lightning strike is going to be a minimum of 20 and probably more. It's not yeah. too bad. No, it's not too bad at all, actually. It's not so bad. All right, we'll keep moving here. And we'll talk about lithium batteries. This is a topic that Glenn reminded me that we needed to add to this because I know that the questions are popping up now more on the insurance questionnaire about lithium batteries. Can you talk about this a little bit and give us an overview? Keith. Is, uh, yeah, me? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, again, it depends on the carrier, uh, the, the program, um, wh whether they accept lithium or not. Um, most are okay with it. Um, uh, some of them, you know, have language that says that uh, you have to adhere to manufacturers installation and specifications in order for the claim to be covered. Um, and, um, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're mostly concerned with thermal runaway and, um, 
and um, I would also, and I, I don't want to jump to the next question, so I'll, I'll wait. Um, but but I've got a couple of comments on the on the next two questions as well. Just go ahead, Keith, and hit them both since we're since we're okay. tapped over our time. Go ahead. Sure. Um, you know, any potential changes in the future? It's an emerging technology, and and insurance policies are always behind uh, emerging technologies because they want to wait to see what the risk exposure is and then react to that. So I think as lithium batteries become safer, uh, which it seems to be the trend, um, you know, the insurance policies will adjust and and they'll see that there's there's lower risk for thermal runaway specifically. Um, in terms of general advice for installation, uh, I think ABYC updated the most recent um, guidelines slash requirements, uh, July of 20, uh, 2022. Um, and they, most of, um, most of those updates are, are basically saying to follow the uh, manufacturer's requirements and specifications. Right. Um, you know, uh, water ingress, shock and vibration, um, uh, uh, over discharging or overcharging. Um, those like are the four, the four categories that I saw in the ABYC requirements that the manufacturers are have parameters around to prevent those types of risks. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So you're not seeing people that are not able to get insurance because they have lithium as much as just needing to make sure that they adhere to that standards, whether it be from the manufacturer, the boat builder, or ABYC. It can happen. It can happen. Yeah. But 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 more so, there there. The insurance company, the program hasn't um, hasn't gone down that road yet. They don't ask the question. Now, if you decide to go, even if they don't ask the question, if you decide to install lithium batteries, uh, I would I would recommend to let the carrier know because you don't want them to be in a position to decline the claim based off of material misrepresent misrepresentation, meaning they could say we never would have written this this risk if we we had known that. So if you if you decide to do it, regardless if they ask the question when you start the insurance, I, I would let them know to make sure that there's coverage in place. Ah, that's a good point. So you're saying if you install them after the fact, let the insurance know that because if you had some sort of an issue, you could have a problem downstream from that from insurance. Yes. Ah. Very good. Very good tip. Well, speaking of tips, we're kind of at the last slide. Just any other um, tips, advice, miscellaneous questions anybody else has that, that's attending? We'll kind of kind of wrap up the call here with open Q&A. Anybody else have any other questions that may have cropped up? The question we have on here is consequential damage and claims. Um, that may have come from somebody else. I don't remember if we added this to the, to the event. Um, any comments on that? Keith? Yes, um, it, that, that's an important coverage to know whether you have or not um, consequential damage. Sometimes it's referred to as ensuing or ensuing loss, but what it is is coverage in the policy that provides you coverage if the proximate or the root cause of loss is an exclusion in the policy. So for an example, if you have a, um, we were talking about rigging earlier, if you have um, corrosion in your rigging or deteriorated stay that uh, as a consequence led to a demasting. If the policy doesn't have consequential or ensuing loss damage, then the, the policy contract is won't provide coverage for any of the claim. Um, wh whereas in reverse, if you have that coverage, 
um, the, the, the policy may not cover that particular stay, but they'll cover everything else. And as we know, that stay will be a nominal cost uh, uh, in relation to the total cost of the claim. Um, so it's important to know whether you have that or not on your policies so that you can be aware of that exposure. Got it. So the key is you want that to be in your policy. Yeah, and it, it's not always available in the international programs. Um, so you, you, you want to know um, you, you want another language surrounding that. In most cases, it's not available, um, but it's, it's definitely something to, um, uh, to look at the policy contract and see if it's there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do, a, you know, um, a, an analysis and if anybody has that question and, and, and let you know if that coverage is in the policy contract. Ah. If, it, uh, if it's a policy contract that I have access to, it, we, we, you know, because we specialize in marine insurance, I, I have ac access to most of the policy contracts. Okay. Well, that's good, Keith. Thanks for offering that up. Go ahead. Somebody else was jumping in. Just yeah. Um, if I, if I can just raise my hand here. Sorry, Mark. So, so just to clarify then, I see a scenario whereby we get a demasking, there's significant damage to the vessel. The insurer sends the surveyor to assess the damage and the value of the claim. They see a bit of corrosion on the chain plate. And they say, well, because you don't have consequential damage, they don't say it that way, but in essence, because you're not covered through consequential damage, the demasking occurred as a result of the corrosion, as a consequence of the corrosion. And therefore we, the, the underwriter, aren't going to, not only are we not gonna cover your rigging, we're not gonna cover any, any damages associated with the, this demasking because our surveyor says, there's a bit of uh, corrosion in the chain plate that caused it all, not the storm. Is that correct? That, that, that is a potential hypothetical situation that could happen if there was no other, if there was no accidental or fortuitous loss, if there was no accidental loss that was causing the demasting. Yeah, so if they couldn't, so yeah, that, that can happen if there's not evidence that there's an accidental loss that had the root cause of the loss was from that accident, whether it be a collision or, or, uh, you know, a, a squall or what have you. We have, hey, Mark, does that help? Yes, thank you. Okay, we have two more questions, uh, one from Brian, and he asked the question in, uh, to you, Keith, about do insurance carriers understand the difference between a Tesla-like high-performance lithium battery and lithium iron phosphate, which are used in, in most sailboats, whether it be Victron, Masterbolt, or Battleborn? Do they care yeah. about the type of lithium? Yeah, generally they don't understand the differences. Um, right. It's an emerging technology, so the un the underwriters just see lithium or lithium ion, and they don't they don't understand if it's not ion. If it, you know, um, that's that's something that you know it always leads to a discussion. Uh, so yeah. the short answer is no. They they generally they they haven't caught on yet. Okay. Glenn, you have a question. Yeah, and just to dovetail on that, Keith, we uh, we upgraded uh, our boat to full lithium ion phosphate about three years ago, two year, two and a half years ago, and shortly thereafter, uh, we were, our insurance was up for renewal. I didn't realize it was going to be an issue. We got down to the goal line with one carrier. I was about to write the check, and they came back and asked our broker, "Oh, by the way, uh, is there lithium on the boat?" And that was a deal breaker. They wouldn't. They wouldn't move forward. Um, so I hope things have evolved since then. 
And 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 Mark uh, uh, Salawi, for your benefit, it's the insurance carrier you mentioned earlier, um, the Jackline guys. Um, the question I had was about uh, Lily Plummer. Um, we've seen a, a couple of instances where you know brokers presented a crazy cheap, you know, like half the price for the similar coverage um, out of overseas areas. This particular one was at Hong Kong. Keith, have you seen any of this stuff? And uh, it, it kind of fell into the category of too good to be true. So I didn't go down the path, but none of us want to overpay if we don't have to. No, and it, it, it's a it's a tricky balance. And yes, I have I have seen it. Um, in, in the last two weeks, I've seen uh, two programs that I, I haven't seen. And when I have it, I take it, you know, I take it to the other producers in Novomar and the owner, Craig, and ask them. We bet we always bounce this off of each other, especially because we have uh, three West Coast offices. And you know, Craig hadn't heard of these programs either. Um, so it's a double-edged sword because a lot of times when you have a new program that comes into the market, generally they do have competitive premiums because they have to gain market share in order to survive. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad program, but when you're when you're getting reinsurance out of Hong Kong or China or Russia, that could be it could be a red flag. Um, to me, it was. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, and it's important to know. The reinsurance, you know, if, are they financially solvent? Um, and it's important to know whether they have a track record. And if they don't have a track record, you're, it, it, there's a risk involved. And, you know, there's no claims of performance history that, you know, we as brokers can can go off of and at least give you some guidance on our experience. So it, 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 is, a, it's a, it's a, it is a risk. Yeah. Thank you. That was ultimately what it came down to with me, too. No, no real history. Uh, Charles, you have a question for Keith. Go ahead. Hey, Keith. Um, what do you, I, I know insurance, it's been explained to me, marine, marine insurance is often uh, cylindrical. So like with Pantages leaving what, four years ago, do you see them coming back? Do you see any of the Europeans coming back or, or um you see us going back the other direction where we're going to have more choices in two or three years? Um, it, yeah, we haven't seen that cycle come back um, since I, I would say it started in around 2016. Um, and it's gotten worse. And, and uh, um, <clears throat> so I think what, what we're seeing now is the market adapting um, and, and providing higher deductibles, providing lightning deductibles, um, X-wind policies, liability-only policies. So the trend that we're seeing is insurance companies staying in business, but offering products that um, require the owner to self-insure more. And I, I, unfortunately, I feel like that's where we're going, and I don't see an end to that um, and, unless there's a shift in the market that that gets the loss ratios under control. And I, I don't see how that would happen in the near future. Well, do Europeans have more options than uh, we do in the United States? Depends on whether they're staying in the Mediterranean or not. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. To, the, the, 
So if they're staying in the Mediterranean uh, or regional waters compared to a U.S. boat that's staying in, in, in U.S. waters, uh, I think there's there's more options for and, and better options for U.S. sailors. Mark, are you seeing that where you're at? Are there more options where you're at or less or? Less, less. I mean, but I'm on the international side and um, it, I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I just know what I hear from the marina shop and what they kind of give me and it's it's been you know it's i've i've had to move i've had to move around a bit just because of the i still use the same broker but different policies because of i think the risk i mean i'm in southeast asia so i tend to be in one of the higher risk areas it just is what it is yeah not a lot of options well on that note um any more questions from anybody else because we are um, clearly at the end of our time. And if we'll hold off any more questions. Okay. Listen, I want to, I want to just kind of wrap this up. And first of all, give a special thank you for Keith. Uh, thank you, Keith, for taking time out of your evening to join us. I have learned a lot from this call. I hope most of you have, have learned a lot from this round table as well. Thank you also for all the panel mem panel members and all of those who have attended this um, as a reminder, this will be on YouTube here shortly, as well as on the podcast. So um, thanks again. I hope you guys have a good evening and uh, we will call it a night. <laughs>